Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. Hello, underminers and overmajors. We are back for episode 48 of season four. It's been a very long season, but it's just the second night of Fish's four-night New Year's Eve 1997 run. The previous night, last night, for those time traveling with us, the circus came to Landover, Maryland at the U.S. Air Arena, which deadheads and hockey fans alike will identify by its preferred pronouns, the Cap Center. But we're moving some 200 miles up the eastern seaboard to New York, New York, to the venue that all of you know as YMSG. But first, let me say that you're listening to Undermine. I'm your host, Tom Marshall, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, RJB and Benji Eisen, who are here to represent America's youth. Well, at least America's youth circa 1997, our hands, our hands are faster than guns. <laughs> um, we are entering the world's most famous arena for a three-night run. I'm excited about I didn't see a show at MSG until 2010, so... You can ask me to leave now if you want, but assuming that you guys saw Fish before 2010 at this venue, what does this show back bring back in terms of memories? Just you know, getting to the garden for this this multi night run because this was this was a uh, a pretty historic one with three nights right at New Year's and um, you know continues to to this day. Um, what what does this what does this venue and time bring back for you guys? 
Uh, okay, I don't know if you this is exactly answering your question, but um, when Fish played here the first time, ninety four, um, I do remember my impression of walking into the garden because I don't think I'd seen any concerts. I'm not sure. I did see a dead show. All right. Well, anyway, I had this very, very vivid memory of being with my mom at Barnum and Bailey's Circus as a really young kid. Um, and I asked her later, and she thinks I was five, which would put it, and this reveals how old I am, um, but so does Wikipedia, at 1968, which is unbelievable. But I think, I think possibly correct. And then I saw the circus a few more times in the 70s. But I remember... Uh, when I walked in there with fish, I was like, Oh my God, I've been here before and, and fish is here now. And it meant a whole lot to Trey and it was incredible. But as far as fish and early appearances at MSG, uh, my wife disputes this, but I don't think I've missed an MSG show until this very last new year's run. When I missed the first two, I saw every baker's dozen for, for example. So I have lots of MSG shows in my back pocket. How about you, Benji? Well, you know, my first, the first band that I saw there, because I had been to Penn Station, obviously, you know, with my parents and being from Pennsylvania, I would take the train in to the city. But my first uh, show at Madison Square Garden was Fish, 1231.95. And I think that this night that we're talking about was probably there for my second show, because I didn't go to, they, they did these, you know, they didn't do... Uh, well, 94, I didn't go. Yeah, this would have been my my second show at the at the world's famous arena, world's most famous arena. Um, but, you know, RJ, yesterday, when I said that the thing that came to my mind about that show, uh, the very first thing that came to my mind had less to do with the show and more to do with the experience. Uh, the problem with this one is that, the, and I say problem, uh, that's probably not the right word. There's no problem with this show. The uh, the thing about this show, though, is the whole show is just so damn good that, you know, three decades later, and people, this is a show that friends of mine comment on, and when we first started doing The Undermine, you know, this this uh, season, and we, you know, it was apparent that we are going to do everyone from 97, people would ask me about this show and said, you guys are definitely going to cover this show, right? And 1230. Um, you know, I still remember... Uh, I remember where I was and where I was dancing for that can't turn me loose jam. And I didn't even know what that was at the time. I recognized that it was something, but you know, I didn't have an iPhone with fish Twitter in my pocket to keep me up to date or to, to fetch it. So I just, I knew it was something. And then I had to ask after the show. Um, but you know, you asked about memories. My, my first memory that comes to mind from this night is being outside the venue on the way in because there's that major bottleneck at MSG by the entrances, and it's a freezing winter evening. Everyone's bundled up in their coats. And I uh, I remember being asked on the way in by a local news thing. Um, they, you know, I, I think, I don't remember what the actual question was, uh, that they, <laughs> which, isn't, which is pretty on brand for me, but I, uh, I remember my answer. I said that fish at Madison Square Garden was a tradition in the making. Um, and I was, at the time, I was just trying to give a good sound bite that would make it to the local news. But history will tell you that I actually nailed it. <laughs> you, you actually did nail it. And I, I was almost certainly there, but I had to go back and, and, and re-listen. Um, but RJ, I, I know you were busy doing other things that night back in 97. 
Um, but I'm sure you've had this show in your collection for as long as you can remember. Um, if that's true, what are your first set takeaways? Yeah, I'm going to try not to uh, talk on every episode of this run about how much I regret not going, but wait till <laughs> we get to 1231.97. I have a real regret for that one. Um, but I remember, like, you know, getting these tapes and I remember side B of the of the first set was Fluffhead, Dirt, and Antelope. And that that part of the first set and the theme that, that leads into it is just phenomenal. I mean, that's that's like 45 minutes worth of music between those those four songs. And it's just it's just really um like the antelope to close the set is just amazing. But I, I really love the long fluff head jam, a nice breather like dirt, and then antelope, which was just at the time was just, you know, you just couldn't go wrong with with antelope. And at the end of the antelope, they get into, you know, back into the fall 97 funk. And that to me, that whole segment is just incredible. What, what do you, what do you guys remember from set one? Well, from memory, not much. Um, and that's because uh, for years now, decades at this point, when I go to pull the show up, I'm usually going straight for that second set. Uh, but the antelope, as you mentioned, RJ, it really stands out here because They've played Antelope over 400 times since its debut, something close to 500 at this point. Uh, and it debuted in 1985. And so that's a lot of Antelopes. Uh, and I'm sure between the three of us, we've heard hundreds of them. But if you played me a 30-second snippet of this one, blindfolded, I don't know why I'd have to be blindfolded, but uh, I would immediately be able to locate it in 1997, you know, uh, because, of, uh, because of the end, the Funt Jam. We talked a lot about how uh, we as a community, as a fish community, we've kind of willfully let the Nelson Mandela effect warp our perception of Fall 97. And what I mean by that is it's a mass uh, hallucination slash, uh, you know, a little bit of revisionist history. And so when we look back at 97, you know, we we think of it as this as the the font was the the cow font was the stamp of, and the signature of the tour. And we got to this a lot this whole season of Undermine. You know, yes, the band was listening to James Brown on the bus every night. Yes, they were doing breakdowns. They were, you know, they were filled with the funk. But but for just a small portion of each show, it was like, you know, it was a new bag or trick. It was something that they would focus on and, and try to do a new jams and go new places with. And then, you know, Black Eye Katie and stuff like that. But for the rest of the time, Fish was still certifiably Fish. Same as they ever were, and that Stell meant being a different band every night. Same as it ever was. Um, anyway, guys, <laughs> the antelope is on the spot uh, in the show. It's the it's the James Brown spot. It's the you guys really have been studying the the James Brown tape, huh? Trey even said something about how on top of the antelope, he says something. You know, he, he gives a little bit of the banter. How he's gonna, you know, they're gonna play some little bit more funky music if everyone just sits around for the second set, which was also very true. Um, and with him talking about self-referencing the how they're gonna play some funky music, and if we want to dance, we can. There's a kind of Back to the Future foreshadowing of the last night of the island tour, which we'll get to. But for now, I probably looking at the clock. It's probably set break. <laughs> I think you're right. One of the things I had to go back and re-listen to um, because it was sort of sporadic and random whenever I would get called up to do the Marco Escondolas for Antelope, I had to listen to make sure that it wasn't me. 
and heard Trey say that funk thing that you just said about probably about 15 minutes ago. <laughs> um, I was just listening to it and and what an amazing antelope, everything, what a great set. RJ, you're right. It was just a, a wonderful set, but it is set break. And that means we will be right back after these words. We are back. We can't turn you loose yet. What am I getting at? We'll get at it. RJ, tell us what you're thinking about when you think about this second set, please. So I think this is um, slightly controversial maybe, but this set has always been kind of elusive for me. I, I think I think people who were there and I think a lot of fans love it maybe more than I do. And I, I'll just, spoiler alert, I think, you know, the second, this, the night after this is just, I think, you know, one of the greatest shows of all time. So maybe that just overshadows it for me, but this did get the live, live fish release. And, you know, there's a lot here, the down with disease, is long, but it, it kind of, you know, is, is meandering for a little bit, but then it gets going and the Bowie it, is really amazing. And then there's this possum, the possum transition and the jam with can't turn you loose is, is awesome. So I guess that's what makes it great. But, um, I always, I always go to the first set of this show, Benji, and I, I think I'm making a mistake. So what, tell us, tell us about your thoughts on, on this particular set. Well, I think you it's context, right? And that is that Fish in 1997, for those of us that were there for the previous years, you know, with me, I, I got into them at the end of 93, beginning of 94. And there were a lot of fans that when when Fish kind of shifted their focus into uh, a more, you know, arena, first in 96, they do the arena rock thing. And then 97, they, they added that you know, extremely well documented by us, <laughs> as well as as well as most fans. They got into the funk and they got into what we call a cow funk or a groove. You know, and that we we talked about a lot. This night, on paper, looks a lot to be more like a classic pre ninety seven show, and so I think that that's a little bit about what's going on when you you say that people are praising it. It's because there's a familiarity to it. The down with disease, you know, opener. And then I, I just feel like the David Bowie, you know, the thing is, is that on paper at that time, if I saw David Bowie on a set list, I knew that it was probably the highlight of the show, right? Uh, if not the highlight of my life, you know, at, at the time, you know, and by 97, the Bowies were, you know, classic Bowies are a little bit before then. Bowie kind of peaked in 90, 95, 94, 95 with lots of great Bowie's since then, of course, but, and then down with disease being from that, from that era, you know, and then of course you get into possum to you enjoy myself, you know, on paper, it looks a lot to be like uh, a very classic, you know, 94, 95 show. And then by the time they get into, into possum though, first of all, I think it is possibly one of the greatest segues of fish. Uh, it's, that, it's black magic. It's, yeah, it's I have no idea unless they practice that specific thing, how they did it. Does anyone know? Did, do you remember? Like, was there were they signaling, or they just somehow are they just the best band in the world? Yeah, I mean, I remember thinking they're the best band in the world. <laughs> you know, when they did both that, could be I, true. Both could yeah. be true. Uh, both things could be true. That's true. Uh, uh, but it just seems it's so incredible. And then, I mean, even if they had pre pre planned that, which I question. Even if they did that, though, they kind of pre-planned the can't turn your loose because you can hear them kind of page words towards it. And then it was such an example of one of the things that Fish does better than anybody, in my opinion, is uh, is this generosity of spirit. 
where when the jam goes a certain way and one person starts tinkering with a, an idea how the rest of the band rallies behind them. And it's like, oh yeah, let's go there. You know, I, you guys, what's over here? I don't know. Let's find out, you know? And so there's this in, in this, uh, you know, in the possum, when they go in a Cantonian list, they're all right on it. But if you listen very carefully, maybe slow down, it's, it's, you can hear the idea come and it's kind of page that has it. And then the whole band just goes into it with such skill and, and uh, confidence that it was like they had practiced it, you know, for a, a lesser band, which is 98% of the bands out there, they would have had to practice this note by note to pull it off. And, and probably for, you know, a week of, of rehearsal, whereas fish just did it effortlessly. But it is a it, it is a familiar song. Like it almost sounds like there's like it, it almost sounds like three other songs. You know what I mean? Like I, I I I don't think I was able to identify it when it was happening, but yet we all knew the song. Yeah. Um. But but I I just kind of and and still even on on re listen, I don't think it was practiced. I think it was just these guys know this stuff so well. And and the generosity of spirit, the hey, let's try this, and the having your confidence with it. So, I mean, I, I, it's debatable whether or not, I mean, I, it's not really debatable. There's an answer for whether or not they, they had pre-planned the Sedway into Possum from Bowie to begin with, because that's just, it floors me every time to this day. Every time I hear it, I'm floored. There's a handful of other Sedways that Fish have done, that Fish has done like that, and just a handful, uh, you know, over their entire career. So this is a top three, top five Sedway for sure. Um, and, you know, that that to me is... is probably one of the things that made the night it, it's because you know rj to be fair to your point it is true that the 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 down with disease and the bowie on paper gets me excited it makes it look like it's this a, a particular type of show and then you see the timings and they're also very you know uh they're they bode well but the actual songs they don't really go into that type two territory they're kind of just they kind of just you know jam and they kind of just stretch them out in a very competent way but it's not, they don't, they don't really do the excitement in this set is all in the second half, you know, and possum for me is very rarely a highlight back then, although it may, it may have been more because back then they, they possum was this kind of hotbed of experimentation where they did a lot of quotes and they did a lot of teases. Sometimes they'd even uh, do a, a little medley of all the other songs they played in that particular show in a possum. You know, and they'd thrown a, a, a lizard's lick and a divided sky lick. So this played perfectly into that, but it also just had that. It, at this point, the first set is kind of them settling into the building. They're kind of like we're we're in MSG. We're here for three yeah. nights now. Yeah. You know, yeah. then the second set is them going starting off a very mid '90s set list, and then the second half is oh, and look what we can do. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that starts with the possum and extends the, the the tube kind of as an extension of that. The tube is 100% a hundred percent a fall ninety seven tube. Yeah, I do think earlier in the set the the downward disease jam when it when it eventually kind of like you know gets into um, the probably the last five minutes or so it gets into like a blues jam and it's almost like the you know and then the possum can't turn you loose that all gets into like a you know bluesy. It was almost like it was there wasn't a lot of funk until they got into that that tube, which really does feel, you know, feels the, feels like Dayton and feels like fall 97, um, which I think is interesting that they were just able to, to kind of flow between those, you know, musical approaches. And I, I, you know, that whole set is just one big segue, you know, and that's, 
just going in between, going between like down with disease with this blues jam at the end to like the intensive tension and release thrilling, you know, Bowie and then the possum, which is just like fun. And then back in the tube, you know, and then you enjoy myself to close it out. It's just, uh, it's, it's a pretty impressive um, piece of music from, from a band. And, and then the, the, uh, the thing is yesterday we talked about how the encore was Jimi Hendrix, you know, and I think I mentioned in yesterday's episode about how tonight it was, it was Led Zeppelin. There's another element to it here, another layer. And that's that for a lot of people, myself included, especially at, at that age, uh, where the MSG, this was, like I said earlier, at the top of this episode it was my second show ever in that building, but the building had a mythology to it not only as the greatest and most famous arena in the world and every band and every magazine talks about how, you know, it's the Holy Grail, but a lot of that has to do because of Led Zeppelin, because of the song remains the same and, and of the concert film that was, that was filmed inside that building, which Trey has guaranteed seen uh, how many times, Tom, numerous times, right? A lot, but he was mad that they cut the jams. Ah, see, there you go. Yeah. And so, and so this was his, uh, uh, this was his moment to be on that stage. And well, I have the same to... complaint about Bittersweet Motel, by the way. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he was just paying back yeah. his payback. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, I think the fact that they did an encore that was Led Zeppelin was not lost on Trey. And I think that, you know, and it wasn't lost on the audience. You, you guys, uh, not to, we're definitely going to talk about this tomorrow uh, for the, the 30th show, but, um, having seen tons of new years, there's always this mythology. There's always this thinking that the 30th is actually better than the new year's show, the new year's gag show or whatever. Um, was that already in place by now in 97? Hey listeners. I want to tell you about one of our great partners, DistroKid. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. If you're a musician and looking to get your music out there, DistroKid is the way to go. DistroKid is available for iOS and Android and is now available in Apple's App Store and the Google Play Store. More than a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music onto Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all other major streaming services. And with DistroKid, you can upload new releases, see your financial progress, get notified when you've earned royalties, withdraw money from the app, view and share links, check your streaming stats, and a whole lot more. DistroKid has more features than any other music distributor. Check them out today. Go to distrokid.com, that's distrokid with a capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine for a special offer only for our listeners. That's distrokid, capital K, dot com slash vip slash undermine thanks to show kid i mean i think so like if you well i i go back always to 12 and the providence show which has my favorite jam of all time as like the highlight of that new year's run and i think i mean i don't know benji about 12 is is probably the best new year's show they've ever played so it's hard but you know the the twelve twenty nine show of that year was was great also, and you know I think like most years, the show before the show or one of the shows before the show is possibly the show of the run. I don't know, Benji. That what do you think? 
I, I agree. I, I love the gags, uh, possibly because my first show was New Year, a New Year's Eve show. And so that was, you know, that was to me what Fish was supposed to do at every show, <laughs> bring an aquarium with them. But, uh, you know, I and I I also, you know, I have uh, as a as a child, I have, you know, a lot of a Broadway musical, a, a love for Broadway and for theatrical productions. And so I love it when Fish does that. I also, you know, love uh, their sense of humor has always been aligned with my sense of humor. And that comes into play on New Year's Eve. So and it's a three set show and there's the pageantry and the revel the revelry of it. That being said, I do think that most of the time the the best show is either the 29th or the 30th. And you know, I, I kind of have a bone to pit with all the people with every single fish fan online. <laughs> and and here we go. Awesome. And that's the, that's that when when they when somebody says when they try to predict they're like, that's gonna be the show of the run. Or that you know, someone last last year was like they tried. They said that they knew what they thought was going to be the best show of the summer based on the venue, and it's not like Fish gets there and they're like, "Guys, tonight's going to be our show." Like let's make. So it's not like for the New Year's run they're saying, "Oh, tonight's the 29th, Tonight's the big one," you know, or tonight's <laughs> the thirtieth. We we better not blow it. You know, it, it's it's uh they get out there and they give it uh, that. That's why we go to, to all these shows. They give it one hundred and fifty percent every every show. Um, and if not, we want a refund, you know. And so they they uh, they put it all online, and some are days are, are better than others. And the thing is, is that on New Year's Eve, they have so much riding on their shoulders. Yeah, they know that they have a lot of people there because it's New Year's and not because they're fish. You know, whether it's people, you know, they bring their wives when their wives don't usually come to shows or their husbands for that matter, or, you know, or or some friend is like, what are you guys doing on New Year's? Oh, you're all going to fish? I'll come with you. You know, so there's a, there's a lot of that. And then the gag and a lot of the of, of the times the gag has, they have to interact with it. So I can only imagine as performers that's on their mind. You know, until until they're done with it, they're nervous about it, and they they want to pull it off, and they they have all this stuff going on in their minds. So the the twenty ninth and the thirtieth is kind of their chance in reverse to blow off steam and to not care about it. And here there's the additional layer, especially in this night, because Madison Square Garden I think was a pretty intimidating play for them, right? You know, like and when Fish is intimidated, not that's not the right word, but when Fish is out of their element. Uh, and a, a great example is a festival when they're playing something where they're not quite super comfortable because they know that it, it's bigger than them or it's different or whatever. They they want to show off their best foot forward, and by doing that, they sometimes don't because they're they 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 do the compositions and they don't they never fully let go. They never fully let go because you don't want to fall on your face in front of in, in front of their fan base. If they fall on their face, we love it. We're like great you know, like keep it going because we know that that's how you get to these incredible moments, well, you know, but, yeah. but for a fan that's only giving them, a, you know, for a first timer, that's not going to give them the benefit of that doubt. They know that. And there's this responsibility to entertain every single person in that building. And so I think that, that the first set of this night, they're acclimating to that and they're playing to that. And they're, they're trying to show off to everyone that came from New York, all these New Yorkers who are very tough very tough music fans, you know, uh, on the West Coast, the Grateful Dead used to say that on the West Coast, they could play to their their biggest fan base in San Francisco and they could play a horrible show and no one even noticed because everyone's having a great time. And in New York City, if you play a bad note or if you play a bad show, the crowd's going to let you know. 
And so I feel like that's going on in their minds. And then the second set, they just own it. That will have to suffice as a, as a preview for uh, tomorrow's show. And then of course, for the new year's show. Um, uh, great, great talking with you guys about it. I, I agree. I think there's something magic about the 30th. I think, like you said, Benji, there's like, you know, they're relaxed, um, especially when they're not traveling now. You know, there's there's something cool about being in a residency. You know, you don't have travel on your mind. You, you're just sort of settled in. You don't have to do a sound check. Or if you do a sound check, it's for fun. It's for practice. Um, whatever. So anyway, they're loose. They're ready. Let's see what they do tomorrow. And that's going to do it for us today. Say good things about us and keep us in your heart, please. Uh, put us back on your dial tomorrow when we return for night three of Fish's New Year's Eve 1997 run. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Thomas Marshall, RJB, and Benji Eisen. It's edited by Eric Limarenko. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Production assistance from Nick Sejas. Original music by Amar Sastry. And art by Mark Down. Thanks. Osiris. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, to Fat Mike from No Effects, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.